Hopefully this won't be millions of times. <laughs> It'll only be two times. Thanks everyone for tuning into Homekeepers. I'm sitting down with Andrea Acosta, the most gracious and generous Sorry, man. Do it again. Sorry, alive. because I was checking the audio. Oh no, it's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for hopping into the episode and listening to Homekeepers, wherever you are. Andrea Cross is the most generous man on the face of the planet. I just, we just recorded this entire episode and I screwed up the audio and uh, wasn't recording the entire time. Welcome back to Homekeepers. It's great to have you here. I'm your host, Alex Harris, and today we're speaking about global wildlife trafficking or the illegal trade of animals worldwide and how one team is endeavoring to stop it. Andrea Crosta, the executive director of Earth League International, weighs in with his experience at the helm of the first intelligence agency for Earth, applying professional intelligence expertise to disrupt the increase of environmental and wildlife crime around the world. We chat about his learnings from years of gathering intelligence, how much change can be made with just one hour a week, suggestions for anyone thinking about donating to support a cause, and why he doesn't need hope to do what's right. Screw hope is a sentiment brought up in this episode, and if that rustles your jimmies, I can't wait to hear what you think of what he has to say. Earth League International is an organization that protects wildlife, forests, oceans, and biodiversity through intelligence gathering and undercover operations, analysis, and cooperation with key governmental agencies. It's spy stuff for nature. Their network of collaborators includes professionals that have worked in the intelligence and investigation fields for decades for top agencies like the FBI, all working to identify and investigate the most prominent environmental criminals and wildlife traffickers in the world, targeting transnational criminal organizations linked to environmental crime, international traffickers, middlemen, and corrupt government officials. They've also created WildLeaks, a platform serving as a safe place for people to submit information related to environmental and wildlife trade that may otherwise put whistleblowers in danger if they leaked it elsewhere. ELI has published investigative reports on the likes of jaguar, elephant ivory, and white rhino horn trade, the Totoaba cartels, the trafficking of live orangutans and birds to use as pets, and more, and work to get ahead of criminal organizations perpetuating these crimes around the world to prevent future illegal operations. Andrea is a friend, an animal lover, serves on the boards of multiple wildlife organizations, and has been called the environmentally friendly version of Jason Bourne by the International Wildlife Film Festival, Jackson Wild. I'm very excited to jump into this conversation with you, so please give a round of applause from wherever you're listening today for Andrea Crosta. Thank you so much for being here a second time around. Really, really excited to, to keep chatting. When we, when we talked initially, <laughs> um, you described the work that you do. So what is the work that you do and how did you get into it? So, yeah, so our, our um, the space where we work is environmental crime, okay? So environmental crime is, the, is actually the fourth largest criminal enterprise in the world. So it's a big thing, uh, up to $260 billion per year. So it includes a lot of stuff, includes, you know, of course, uh, wildlife poaching, wildlife trafficking, illegal fishing, illegal logging, and so forth, illegal mining. So, we operate in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, we focus on uh, um, what what you might call them the kingpins behind uh, this whole thing. So the the engine. So the, the the most important environmental criminals and wildlife traffickers in the world. Uh, very often, uh, these are people. Uh, 
completely unknown to 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 the public and to law enforcement agency as well uh, so they are very difficult to uh, to investigate and to research the only way to do it is actually to infiltrate those networks to, like we do to we have a, a team of undercover specialists and their job is to infiltrate those networks mm. uh, we stay with them for years and we extract a lot of information about what they do, um, how they do it, and so forth. So, if you look at environmental crime, it's uh, you know it's like a canvas with many elements. Uh, so there is uh, many NGOs, many organizations are focused on the poaching, what you know the poaching level. So poachers and rangers, but for us is is too low this level. It doesn't. Mm. It's not interesting from a intelligence point of view so if you operate at that level you do not understand who are the most important players in the supply chain so then of course some organizations are focused on on mostly on the buyers and the consumers so try to convince them not to buy anymore but it's not easy as well Mm -hmm. and we decided to focus on what happens in the middle so at the international trafficking level mm-hmm. and this is our speciality basically and you've been doing this for a very long time like how how many years now have you been operating i mean in, in conservation space? i mean in conservation for all my life so many many years a few decades i was in kenya uh around 12 years ago for my previous job not easy to to define it but i was i've been working for a long time in in this space of investigation intelligence homeland security technology vip protection and all sort of things okay so let's yeah. put it this way and uh and i was in kenya working for a client uh, this client was actually the former prime minister of somalia who had a lot of problems with terrorist groups and so forth so i was working for him with the company, right in the middle of the elephant poaching crisis, when we were losing 35, 40,000 elephants every year because mm. of the ivory. So I was there, I witnessed awful poaching incidents. I, I went out with the rangers and I started to think the whole world is asking the rangers to solve the problem, okay? is is like, asking a policeman here in LA to solve international narco traffic. Of course he cannot. Okay? That's outrageous. And uh, so I start, okay, so I start asking questions. Okay, so who is using professional intelligence to fight this thing? Mm-hmm. And the answer was nobody. And so I decided to stop what I was doing before uh, with the dream and maybe actually also an obsession to one day be able to establish the first intelligence agency for Earth because I thought Earth deserves its own intelligence agency. And you've done a fantastic job of doing that. I mean, what you so you basically spend months, years working to accumulate knowledge on these operations and then eventually submit those briefs to exactly. local or international agencies. Can you walk us through that process a little bit and explain exactly. how you fit into the process and what the outcomes usually end up being? So the way we work is at the level we work so the highest possible level in 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 terms of environmental crime international wildlife trafficking and so forth law law enforcement agencies very often know very little about it so our work is to enlighten them with what happens at the at the top so our work is to extract all kind of information from this from our targets and from these international networks by spending time 
with them as mm. much as possible. We also use a lot of undercover devices, so we record a lot of conversations, video, audio. We have a group of analysts as well, crime analysts, and their work is to make sense, basically, of what we collect in the field. So they, they put everything together, they, have different, they use different softwares to produce uh, what we call confidential intelligence briefs that contain a lot of information about these people and their networks and their modus operandi and how they do it, what they do it, how they move the money, smuggling routes, everything. Where they live, where they invest the money, where they send kids to school, everything. And then we share these confidential briefs with trusted law enforcement agencies uh, at a local level and also more international level. Local, I mean, uh, for example, at the moment we work, uh, for example, all over Latin America. So Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Mexico, Costa Rica. So we share information with local law enforcement agency in those countries and we help them a bit. Yeah. But also we also share a lot of information with US law enforcement agencies. Everything we do, when we look at environmental crime and wildlife trafficking, for example, we, we, we do it through the lens of convergence, criminal convergence. What does that mean? It means the convergence of environmental crime and wildlife crime with other serious crimes like money laundering, human smuggling, drugs. Because at the very top, these people do everything. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the kingpins. The kingpins. They, this big, and sometimes they're just big businessmen. You know, they're not flat out criminals. Of course, they do a lot of legal and illegal at the same time. But it's very interesting because uh, during a meeting with them, they can offer you three, four tons of uh, shark fins and jaguar parts and uh, illegal timber and live animals but also and then they switch the conversation to human smuggling and they tell you how they smuggle hundreds of thousands of people across the globe and then they switch the conversation to money laundering they explain you how they launder money for them and for organized crime in general so it's a very unique group of people and the only way to get information about these people is to infiltrate those networks there's this information you don't find it on the internet just from them from and the when you say infiltrate you're not like it's it's not straightforward by any means but you mean you legitimately mean because we spoke about this earlier like becoming friends yes. with these people spending time with them uh we we it's very important to say that as an organization we never do anything illegal that's very important for us so we don't commit any crime we don't buy anything illegal so intelligence is not a science, it's an art, it's a tradecraft, mm. okay? So, and, and it happens over the course of a long period of time, months, years. Yeah. So, and depending on who is your target and what kind of network and in which country, as a team, when we design the mission, we understand what is the best way to introduce to these people our undercover team. And sometimes you bump into them by chance uh, and and then you create, a, you know, you become friends. Sometimes you are actually, uh, the more you do what we do and the more traffickers you know that they are willing to introduce you to other traffickers mm. in our undercover team. So if you know someone in Brazil, uh, a trafficker, and you have been dealing with them for a couple of years, and then you say, hey, I'm going to Colombia or I'm going to South Africa or Thailand, they will tell you, oh, you should meet this guy. 
and it's then wild you continue. That works the same way as like classic business networking. Exactly the same way. They trust yeah. it based on trust, of course, right? Mm-hmm. So once you gain their trust, you understand a lot. They tell you all sort of things, of course. So our work is based on that, and this is why it cannot. It's a not. It's not a short term uh, activity. It takes time. Yeah. The difference between short term and long term. What would you say? it long-term actually looks like for you? For us, uh, optimal time would, is uh, around uh, at least a couple of years, if not more, three. It means, and that's the difficult part, and this is also the difference between intelligence and investigation or pure law enforcement, although mm. we help them. Yeah. The difference is that for two years, you collect information about these people and you collect information also about crimes yeah and you do not arrest them you let them swim in the ocean as long as they take you to more important people or they explain you more about what they do is that something that they generally do or they'll just explain their plan they'll talk about like what it is they're getting up to the more you spend time with them and the more they tell you absolutely everything not only and well beyond uh, what you're actually investigating yeah and that's why we are able to work uh, with this approach you know with this criminal convergence led approach because they we start uh, talking about jaguar or sharfins or ivory mm-hmm. and they tell you oh by the way we you know our group launders 50 million dollars every year and this is how we do it and oh by the way yeah or because you meet other people spending time with them you meet other people their friends yeah oh this guy this gentleman yeah this is is very big in human smuggling we smuggle you know 10,000 people every year from Asia to Mexico blah 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 they explain you this right so criminal convergence allows us to collect information about crimes that are way more serious than environmental crime or wildlife crime. So it's a fantastic opportunity to go after these people for crimes that are more serious than wildlife crime. Because sometimes if you deal only with wildlife crime, environmental crime, A, in some countries, laws are very weak. Yeah. Or, or obscure, so they don't risk so much, these people, that's why they are doing it, okay? Where like if you were to punish someone for the environmental crime, it wouldn't really matter that much, as opposed to punishing for a much more intense crime. So the difference is that if I bust you for Jaguar trafficking or uh, shark fins trafficking, you will probably get out from prison if you get to prison immediately. Really? Okay. That's in some quickly. in some countries, yes. You know, you pay the judge. the the the, the case is dismissed. You know, you don't know how many cases are dis, dismissed. Okay. Wow. The difference is that if I get the attention of a big law enforcement agency and they bust you for money laundering, you're screwed mm-hmm. forever. And that consequently stops all the other exactly. crimes as well. Exactly. So, again, put yourself in the shoes of what you are really protecting a jaguar or a rhino mm-hmm. he will tell you if you could talk he will tell you screw rhino trafficking go for money laundering so i don't see this guy <laughs> anymore right yeah get rid of him forever because if you keep arresting these people just because they're trafficking rhino i think you got it already they will get out mm-hmm. very soon so this is not really helpful so we're trying literally trying to change the game but not only that but when you arrest these people for those serious crimes you send a message 
across their network, the game changed. Yeah. We are coming after you for serious crimes. So I want to push them out of nature crime. It's not low risk anymore. We are trying to connect you with other serious crimes and you're risking serious jail time. Yeah. So I want you to get out from nature crime. Don't touch anymore wildlife or nature. You might continue to do money laundering and human smuggling, but that is not my problem anymore. That's a com- entirely the problem of somebody else. Yeah. Right now I'm using convergence to to change the game and to be more, to have more teeth, you know, to be more uh, effective on these people. And that's part of your impact strategy, right? Because we on on this show often talk about impact metrics, which are contrary to metrics that we've all heard about, like marketing metrics or donation metrics, like things like that, where you track the views on something, you track the impressions on something, or you track the amount of money raised for something, and you consider that the ultimate success. Right. Whereas an impact metric is a thing that happens offline, in, like in the real world, a tangible thing that takes place. Exactly. And if you pulled it off, then that's great. You succeeded. If you didn't pull it off, it doesn't matter how many people see it. No. It doesn't matter how much money you raise. If you used that momentum incorrectly or you didn't take the time to understand what kind of momentum would be most effective to garner, then it was ultimately a failure. Exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what an impact metric looks like for you, like what your impact metric is and then how that affects the way you think about operations. Yes, that's a good point because sometimes, you know, you do things and, 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 and you think it's helping, it's, it's effective, but it's actually very difficult. The classic example are awareness campaigns, you know, they, they are, you know, NGOs putting tens of millions of dollars on billboards and ads, you know, mm-hmm. in, in certain countries telling, please don't buy ivory, please don't buy rhino, please don't buy wildlife, right? Yeah. And you can legitimately claim with your donors, for example, I reach, with our billboards, we reach 20 million people. It's, it's probably true. Yeah. But did I change their mind? That's super difficult. And especially, and if after one or two or three years, rhinos keep dying then it means that this thing is not that effective yeah and you cannot call it impact and there's not really an easy metric for impressions very difficult it's you, like i mean there is the metric of impressions like you said where it's like okay we know that this many people travel this road every single day so a bunch of them probably saw that billboard but like you said the amount of people that are actually convinced isn't something that you get data on exactly and certainly not behavioral no. change and it's, and i and i what i say all the time to this to some of these ngos and of course they don't like to hear it is that changing you know with the campaign with the billboard with ads changing the behaviors of people who have been doing that or buying that product for centuries because it's part of their values is not like selling coca-cola or pepsi-cola eh? Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm trying to convince you to switch from Coca-Cola to Pepsi-Cola. It's not that easy. Yeah. This is the kind of, again, I'm not saying don't do it. Keep doing it, okay? Because in, in the long term, maybe they will work these campaigns. But in the immediate terms, we don't have the time. Yeah. Okay? Species, entire ecosystem, biodiversity in general, they don't have the time to, to wait for the changing of the behaviors of consumers. So that's why our impact is really, really concrete in the sense that, first of all, it's very easy to assess because it's based on the 
quantity and quality of intelligence that we collect and process and share with law enforcement, how many targets we identify, how many top environmental criminals around the world we manage to not only identify but investigate and collect information and put together the information for law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, of course, there is a limit of what we can do. So we, we, we are not a law enforcement agency. It means that we cannot arrest people. Yeah, That's the part that we cannot control. We help as much as possible and it happens. For example, last year, Bolivian authorities arrested five of the most important Jaguar and, and wildlife traffickers in the country, all foreigners, not Bolivian, and they did it using our information. Mm. Uh, the same happens in Mexico. In Mexico, there was a series of arrests with the public prosecutor using our information. So this is one kind of impact. Yeah. And as you can imagine, collecting information and then helping law enforcement to arrest uh, top international wildlife traffickers is not like arresting 10 poachers in the middle of nowhere in Africa. Okay. Yeah. Of that, they have, you have a million available. Okay. Millions. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a different job. It takes more time. Yeah. So the impact in the long term is much higher because also, unlike people, what people think, when you're dealing with narco-trafficking is, is actually big narco-traffickers get replaced very easily. Mm. But in this space, not that easily. They are businessmen. They are afraid to go to jail, some of them. Yeah. So once you arrest a bunch of them, you send a very strong signal. They stop doing what they're doing. Really? The problem is that nobody's going after these people. They're ghosts, as I told you before. Yeah. They are ghosts. People don't know who they are. They, we don't know their face, their names. So my job, I have my own ghost. So I use my ghost. And by chase other ghosts, I mean understand exactly who they are, what they do, where they live, how they do what they do, and then help law enforcement to finish the job, of course. I find it amazing that people are as open with you as they are about the illicit activities they're engaged in. It's like, it reminds me of like when, when growing up, right? Like playing video games and movies and stuff, you always heard about the villain of the movie coming up to the main character, like right as he's about to fight the final boss and hearing like, them explain the entire plan like literally outlining like this is what we're going to do to you and this is how horrible it's going to be and <laughs> these are the multiple steps that i have like laying out that these are the hoops you'll have to jump through and how you right. can get through them and the fact that that actually is the level of transparency with which these real life international criminals operate once that trust is established is like kind of hilariously validating and endearing to me but also like genuinely wild to think like wow yeah. that's that is actually how it can be and it i mean i'm not saying it's easy of course uh, and it will not happen with me because i don't belong to you know the cultural groups we're dealing with mm -hmm. so for example a lot of uh, um, international wildlife traffickers uh, at the moment are of asian origin okay different mm -hmm. countries in Asia. Yeah. So you have to be, if you want to become their friends and being recognized as, you know, as someone coming from the same culture and the same area with the same values, you have to be like them. Yeah. So it's our undercover teams that are, it's, it's made up of different nationalities and we play with these nationalities to design the best possible mission to attack, to penetrate, to target that specific group or that specific person. And yeah. then it takes maybe a year before they are really opening up. But by that time you become you became a friend. They don't see our people every time. They see they see them once in a while because we pretend to travel around. We are 
businessmen, right? So we pretend to be businessmen. We sometimes we pretend to be traffickers ourselves, and then slowly you get to that kind of trust. Yeah, and um, and this is how it's done. You know, intelligence is not a science; is a is a is an art, is a trade craft, and is not uh, you know it doesn't work all the time, hundred percent. And but it's possible with the right people. Have you ever had a moment where? the jig was up or like it, it was almost like you had like an oh shit moment where it was like everything is going according to plan and just this massive wild card gets thrown into the mix or like something catches you completely off guard and what was that like how like how did you respond or how did your team respond to that it happens very rarely because if you do your job well you are prepared for 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 when shit happens okay yeah and you prevent it actually so, for example, our people is very often uh, wired, but not all the times. If we decide that the setting is a bit difficult, dangerous, maybe not in a public place, you know, we don't uh, hide devices and stuff like that just to minimize the ways a mission can go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I can say that in, the, in 10 years, more or less, we had two of those moments. One uh, was a real, very, very... Um, uncomfortable and shitty moment and by chance I was part of it because I'm usually not part of the undercover groups because I cannot be undercover of course but in that case yes it was many years ago I I, I was pretending to be an Italian uh, trafficker of coral Okay. Because Italy is very famous with coral. Got trafficked. Got trafficked, yes. Absolutely. There is. uh, Because it's protected in in many areas of the world. So there is that. And and Italy is famous for coral, Mm -hmm. uh, especially the jewelry and stuff like that. So it Mm. made sense. It's it's the legend that the profit that I built for myself made sense together with my team. And this incident is actually has been captured very well. In a, in a very famous documentary we did uh, a few years ago, The Ivory Game, mm-hmm. co-produced by DiCaprio. You, you can watch it on Netflix. And so I don't want to spoil the moment. Okay. And, and, and it was a really bad moment. And, uh, and you actually don't understand it from the film because they cut the scene, but uh, the way we got out was we pretended to be police. Basically, they kind really? of, we let them understand. They thought we were police and we play along and say, yes, we were, you know, we are investigating this stuff and they got so scared <laughs> that they let us go, of course. And How does that work? I mean, I feel like- I It was feel a whole like scene, you know, it was a whole scene and unfortunately has been not captured in the film because the film has, you know, has a time limit. So yeah. if you see, if you watch this scene in the, in the documentary, The Ivory Game, you think uh, you didn't understand, but at a certain moment, we, we had a driver down, it was in China in the middle of, you know, in Beijing, so really, Enemy, enemy territory. Meaning, if if something happens there, you you are you you know you, it's difficult to get away with that. Yeah. And we have a driver, and the driver came up where we were, mm-hmm. and made a, a, an incredible scene of I'm um, the driver of these uh, people that work for the government. You are screw. You are fucked. Yeah. And uh, what you don't see in the film is that those people we were dealing with that we got busted. Okay, I'm not going to tell you how, but you will. We got busted, basically. Sure. Yeah. At the end of the meeting, they were serving tea to my team, and their hands were shaking from fear. Really? Uh, so serving tea to our team, they thought it was police, mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, to trying to find their try to find out if they were in trouble or not. 
Yeah. Okay, and we got out from that. Wow. And uh, <laughs> the second uh, ep episode happened not long ago in a country I cannot tell you because it's still an active investigation. And basically while we were talking to these people that we met them many times, all international wildlife traffic is very high caliber. Mm -hmm. During the meeting, they receive a call from another guy like them. And this guy was telling them, the people we were meeting, basically about us. So they were, it was, they were and the problem is that this other trafficker on the phone was getting information from the local police. Mm. So we were trying to help the police, but someone in the police was kind of passing information. And the crazy thing is that they were telling the whole thing about us to us during the meeting without knowing it was us. Yeah. Okay. So it was a <laughs> weird situation and we were <laughs> filming the whole thing on the cover and they were telling who there is this you know, there is the, the police told us there is this American NGO going around. You have to be very careful. And we were, and our team, really? I don't believe it. And it was us. <laughs> they were talking about us. So That's really so crazy. <laughs> but, but how you contain this, uh, this, you know, these events is with, if you do your job well before, you build a real relationship with these people. Yeah. You become friends. They have been seeing you for at least two years. Mm -hmm. They will never thought it's you. That reminds me of there's that like Spider-Man meme where like every, there's like three people all wearing Spider-Man costumes and they all have their like hands up. Because they don't know who is who. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like that exact situation. Is, uh, so, yeah. nuts. so, but again, if you, if you prepare, if, if you're well prepared, usually you can yeah. manage these situations. You mentioned deeply understanding your legend and I wonder if because there, there's there are so many different environmental causes and just causes period that people might want to get involved with nowadays and just like or in general um and i wonder if you have any advice for people looking to start involvement in a cause um because i know that it's often very intimidating to step into these spaces that are uh rather intense and like see it feel like it it often feels like you need a certain amount of expertise or experience to even Absolutely. begin participating on something. So what does understanding a legend look like? Can you explain that more? And then what would you recommend to folks looking to get started with a cause that they might believe in but aren't necessarily sure how to begin? Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer. First of all, the cause that they might believe in doesn't have to be environmental necessarily. Any cause, okay? It can be children or sick people or whatever doesn't matter as yeah. long as you help somebody or something i'm okay with it my suggestion at, at the very beginning especially when you jump into complex stuff uh, you have to be very humble and uh, really really open-minded but at the same time uh, with a active critical mind so you keep asking yourself questions about uh, what you're seeing and the, maybe the hidden agendas of the people you're working with. They could be good people, but everyone has an agenda. So it's, uh, it, it takes time, a long time. For example, I, when I started in conservation many, many years ago, yeah. I was lucky enough to find uh, a person because sometimes is about stumbling upon the right person at the, at the right time, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a still my friend a great guy and i was a student a university student uh natural i was studying natural sciences in milano italy i learned about this guy and this guy still has 
an incredible breeding center for endangered species and also it you know the worth to reintroduce animals around the world and you know mm. really cool place especially yeah. when i was young and i reach out to him saying hey i'm willing to work for free i just want to learn and he said yes i don't know miraculously because he's always <laughs> super, super busy and that's it then we became you know it was a long story of friendship but then i learned a lot from him and from that but i offer myself uh you know i'm, I'm okay use me I, i'm here to help you don't have to pay me I just want to learn stuff in a space where it's very difficult to enter, it's very difficult to meet real good people. So I'm happy not to be paid as long as I'm learning. And you said earlier when we when we first spoke about how like it like you've dedicated your life to this entire thing and there's I feel like the role models that we see online it's often like the thing they do. And so people don't feel like if they're if they're not 24/7 involved in the fight for insert cause here then they can't really actually be involved in the fight or they're not putting enough effort in. But then you mentioned that even if it's just an hour out of every single week, like people can have a massive, massive Absolutely. impact. I mean, imagine if everyone on this planet will dedicate one hour in a week to help something. Yeah. Doesn't matter what. Yeah. Imagine the amount of hours used to, to do good. Yeah, there's like seven billion people on Earth. I mean, it's a <laughs> lot. So let's let's not ask this extra effort <laughs> to people who cannot. You know, there are people in terrible conditions, so they cannot. Uh, they barely can get to the end of the day. Or the, so I'm not talking about. But in the Western world, yeah, and especially among people that you know have no money problem, and good work and everything, so they cannot complain about anything. You know how many people I know, even really rich people, they do nothing zero they don't give money they don't help just enjoy life yeah and it's very difficult if you don't have it in 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 you how can i convince you i can how can i tell you or mm -hmm. dare you to tell dare to tell you hey i'm not sure you're doing good for the universe okay yeah from a universal point of view you are useless mm -hmm. doesn't matter if you're super famous or super rich but if you really don't do anything for the others you're useless. Why, why should someone like what, what's the argument there as to like the reason? Um, that's the problem. If you don't have it, you don't have it. Eh? That's yeah. how can passion can germinate in a person that feels nothing about mm -hmm. anything? Well, where does it, where does it come from for you? Like, I was born like this. So for me, it's super easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I have to be careful in, in, you know, in judging other people, because if you don't have it, you don't have it. Yeah. So how can I help you to feel something to feel the urgence to help, yeah. to do something, to make this world a slightly better place. I think especially now amidst the constant barrage of bad news <laughs> that comes <laughs> yes. from like, like social Constantly. media in general. Like it's, it can be very, very difficult to maintain motivation, but there are people that do it, like yourself included. And I wonder like, what does, what does maintaining hope look like for someone that sees the incredibly like brutal realities that you see on a day? Like not even not like the I mean, all of us are exposed to difficult headlines nowadays, but um, the level of trauma that you experience or are exposed to on a regular basis is like so much higher. So how do you personally maintain hope in a situation like that? Yeah, it's a good question. For, from a professional point of view, we try to be as 
professional and detached as possible. Even if you're dealing with uh, terrible people, committing terrible crimes, you try to be as cool as possible, as, as focus, you know, eyes on the ball. My right hand, uh, uh, Mark Davis, is 20, 28 years in the FBI and the CIA, so these people learn to remain really cool even in front of the worst possible thing that you can imagine, okay? Yeah. And that's what makes them really good in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're always constant focus. So we all try to do this on a, from a professional point of view. On a personal level, I don't need hope, personally, because I, I actually think hope is overrated. Hope sometimes <laughs> is actually a problem. Really? Because when you hope too much, you, you're hoping, you're just hoping that things will get better and maybe the next generation will find a solution and you're putting kind of the responsibility on somebody else's shoulders sometimes with hope. And in my case, I'm fighting for nature, for wildlife, for animals and for a better world. But for me, it's like fighting for my family. Exactly the same. It's like I, I would, you know, it's like, like fighting for my father, mother or brother. Mm. So when you fight for your family, you don't need hope, right? Dedicating an hour a week to help something we care about isn't possible for everyone, but it is something many of us can do. Mitch Etter, for example, just joined the Homekeepers team as an editor, and he single-handedly saved this episode. As one of the first conversations I recorded back in June, it had another mistake the second time I recorded. Halfway through Andre and my conversation, it switched to the laptop microphone instead of the high-quality mics in front of our faces, and the audio quality was lower than it has been so far, and initially it was beyond my ability to save it but Mitch resurrected it to a place that's listenable. It was recorded in an Airbnb I rented above a busy intersection, so you'll now be able to feel like you're really there with us and hear some ambient audio like cars and motorcycles driving past outside that the earlier mics didn't pick up. But the ideas are worth a listen, and it's just as well that it's more authentic. I can't wait to hear your thoughts, and if you want to share them publicly, leaving a rating and review helps the show get out to more people. If you really enjoy Homekeepers and want to help produce it, you can support at patreon.com slash alexharris. Patrons get access to every episode one day early and can ask questions to guests, which you'll start to hear in a few weeks because of our little backlog of pre-launch conversations. The most helpful way to keep this show going is to support at patreon.com slash alexharris. That's A-L-E-X-H-A-R-A-U-S. And you can choose between giving $10 or just $5 a month, which means Mitch and I either both get a slice of pizza or get the chance to fight over one. Again, that's patreon.com slash alexharris, A-L-E-X-H-A-R-A-U-S. All right, back to Andrea. So, yeah, so a lot of people ask me about hope and, and how can I you know, have hope uh, after the ugly things I, I see every day uh, with my work. Um, and my answer usually is that I don't, I understand the question and I understand why for certain people it's important to have hope, to keep growing. In my case, it's not so important. Actually, I don't need hope. Because I, for me, I mean, I, I'm fighting for, for, for me, nature, wildlife, oceans and forests are my family. It's, there's nothing more important for me on the planet than them. So when I fight for them, it's like fighting for your family. When you fight for your family, you don't need hope. You fight just because you need to defend your family, right? Your mother, father, boyfriend, whatever, girlfriend. So personally, I don't need hope. Uh, I wake up every every day and I start fighting for them because I know they need it. So that's it. That's 
that's good enough for me. I don't need anything, any other reason. Um, hope sometimes is, is, could be also uh, a way to put responsibility on somebody else's shoulders or the next generation or... Uh, and I don't, I don't like the, the fact that, you know, if you don't have hope, then you don't fight back. That's... Mm. I don't like that, this part of, you know. Uh, and I also don't like uh, what I call uh, fake hope, which is hope uh, based on assumptions uh, and assessments that are not right, that are not true, that are not correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's like what? Like for example, um, a classic example of, of is is you know when you do something about it, and for example, let's let's uh, use as an example uh, the you know decades long. Uh, war against uh, um, elephant poaching and rhino poaching, okay, because right. of the trafficking of ivory and rhino war, okay. For decades, 99% of the efforts and the money and the attention went on anti-poaching. So let's help rangers to fight poachers. And then you had this ugly situation of rangers killing poachers, poachers killing rangers, and, and, and many, many people put their hope on that. And that is, in my opinion, what, that was misleading because uh, uh, it was not enough. Um, I, I understand why hope is important for a lot of people to keep fighting, to keep doing what they're doing. And this is a question I got, I get all the time, because, all the time because it's, you know, they, they know that I'm dealing with very serious, sometimes disturbing events and things, you know, crime and, and trafficking of dead animals, so it's not, uh, I understand why you get this question. Yeah. My answer usually is that I don't need hope because uh, for me, the answer, the answer usually is, my answer is usually that I don't need hope personally hmm. to do what I'm doing, to keep doing, despite the challenges and the difficulties that, of course, uh, we have in our work, because fighting for nature, fighting for the environment, animals, wildlife, forests, oceans, for me it's like fighting for my family, exactly mm-hmm. the same. So I don't need hope to fight for my family, you don't need hope to fight for your family, you would fight no matter what, right, until yeah. the last second, uh, regardless of, you know, how it's going. And and I have the same approach, you know, I have the same feeling. So every day I, I wake up and I start fighting because that's, I know they need me and they need my team and they need all of us. So for me, it's a, it's a, it's the reason is good enough to, to do my job so without thinking too much about hope. And, you know, sometimes with hope, it's also a way to let's hope for the best, let's hope in the future, let's hope in the next generation. It's like sometimes I have the feeling that people with hope put responsibility on somebody else's shoulder. So forget about the hope, start fighting. That's my, you know, my, my suggestion. <laughs> uh, also, I'm not, um, sometimes, uh, you know, I struggle a little bit with, with the hope when it's based on, on, uh, on false or misleading or wrong assumptions and assessments. So, uh, you know, you can, you, you hope for, for example, when I did the documentaries in the past, and uh, all the times during interviews, they were telling me, okay, now Andrea, you have to give me hope, because, you know, we have to give hope, 
you cannot not put hope in a documentary. Yeah. And I and sometimes I struggle because you know when when I know that we are doing we are not doing the right things. Yeah. Then how can I have hope? Like not as in not taking the proper the right, strategies. Exactly. Yeah. So for example, in the case of the Vaquita, uh, this overly is is in focus only on illegal fishermen and what happens at sea and completely disregarding what, you know, the role of big international traffickers actually, they are the investors, they put the money, they are the engine behind the whole thing. The real responsible are the, are the big traffickers, but everyone around me is focused only on the illegal fishermen. And then you ask me for hope, then mm-hmm. my answer is, well, if you continue like this, I'm sorry, there's no hope for the Vaquita. I'm sorry, there's no hope for the right. Yeah. If you start listening to me and try to change your strategy and add other things and do other things, or maybe I can give you hope. Yes. Yeah. But hope just because, just because we need hope, that I don't like it. I respect that. I mean, I feel like the it's it's good to emphasize the fact that hope is not necessary to fight, and that fighting is an act that you do regardless if you care about something, but also that it's important not to feign hope when you see an issue um, or you see a flaw in the strategy. Um, Yeah, it's something I haven't heard of before, like hasn't been, like especially going through um, environmental, like the the academic approach to that is always like maintain hope, emphasize that. No matter what, right? No matter what, even amidst a... you know, non-functional strategy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, if you compare, I don't know. Let's compare the ivory trafficking, elephant poaching, whatever, to a disease. Okay. okay. If you have a disease and you know that they are giving you the wrong treatment or not enough, and at the same time you are, they're asking me, do you have hope about your disease? No. At the moment, no. You change the treatment. You give me what I need, and then I have hope. Yeah. And it's exactly like, but because in the world, especially it's a problem that I have with media and, and, and because they always need emotions and hope. This, the currency is emotions and hope. I give you emotions and hope and you give me money or your attention. Mm-hmm. And it's a, I understand it's okay, it's also important sometimes, but the risk is to get into this vicious cycle of, of I give you constantly emotions and hope and you give me money and your attention and you become my followers, but are we actually doing something or not? Are mm-hmm. we changing something or not? Yeah. That's the question. The impact metric. The impact, exactly. It's so good. Yeah. What is something you'd like to see more of in the conservation movement? and what, Or what is something that you see lacking in the conservation movement right now? So from a... From the perspective, from the point of view, point of view of, of the conservation organizations and nonprofits and NGOs, I would like to see more genuine collaboration among us, mm-hmm. uh, because sometimes we don't do that. Yeah. And and I in my in my work, uh, I actually very often encounter hostility, mm. just because I'm stepping on somebody else's toes or because some NGOs are very territorial in, in where, wherever they work. So mm-hmm. there is this you know, unspoken conflict among NGOs and it's very detrimental for the cause, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, 
from the point of view of uh, the donors, the foundations, the investors, the, the, the people who put money and enable the whole thing, I would love to see them doing a bit more homework and, uh, and also betting on different horses, meaning mm. uh, we currently, that's my personal you know, assumption, my personal uh, opinion, but I think that 90% of the money and the funding out there are captured by the same 8, 10, 12 very large environmental organizations. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And then everyone else is basically fighting for the crumbles. That's why there is some host, some hostility sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. And this, uh, uh, and 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 so I understand why sometimes donors and foundations do not trust small organization. Maybe they don't know them. But in the long run, I don't think it's healthy to keep putting mountains of money on the same NGOs. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when there are so many small NGOs in the field, in the world, that really need to grow and they need resources to do that, okay? Yeah. I, know, I know dozens of NGOs, small NGOs, that are doing a fantastic job and they remain small for the past 10 years. How, how is it possible? At the same time, I see donors giving five, ten million dollars to large NGOs that already have a budget of a hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. So instead of giving this money to NGOs that don't need money, try to help 10, 20, 50 small NGOs and, and you will really change the world like that because really you make you will empower these people to do a better job. Yeah. That resonates with me as a creator for sure. Because I remember like there's there's a moment in there was a moment for me and there's been a moment for like so many of my friends and other creators that have come to know over the course of this career where that first moment where you get a financial influx, like whether it's your first real brand deal or a piece of equipment that a friend gives to you because maybe they don't even need it anymore, but like it's just so markedly better than what you already have. Like for some reason you get a, the first small investment boost. Um, and it might only be like, you know, $2,000 or something. But at the time from zero, like that is, that means everything, that is a life-changing amount of money um, for a small creator. And I imagine that in the same way, if someone like you, like you said, if they, if they were to give like, if an investor had like $5 million that they wanted to do something with, they could give it to a group with $100 million or bet on different horses and split up smaller investments relative to the size of the nonprofit that are much, much larger for them um, and end up having an, the change in momentum would be significantly awesome. larger than awesome. if it were to go to a, a oh single God. large nonprofit. And you will help this, this organization, these NGOs to grow and to do more. So if they're already doing a good job, why you don't have them to do more mm -hmm. on a bigger scale, right? And sometimes these donors, they actually, they mean well, but I think sometimes they're just lazy. You know, maybe in their private life, in their business life, they are incredible businessmen, super successful. But then when you get to charity, it's easier to, to, to send a check to the, a big NGO or the UN and problem solved, right? Yeah. Instead of taking a bit more time to you know, spend a few hours to study. That hour a week. Whatever, maybe exactly <laughs> an hour a week. That could be the hour a week. Instead of sending a check like this, do a bit of homework, try to understand 
who are the small NGOs in the field that really, really would need to your help? Yeah. And give it to them. Mm-hmm. And it's like that that you actually change things on a local and international scale as well. So having interacted now at, at this stage in your career with so many people from so many different backgrounds, not only in multiple industries between intelligence and conservation and environmental work, but also so many different countries and walks of life, people that have done really, really great things and also people that have done really, really bad things. Um, to you, given all of that, what does it mean to be human? Um, yes, it's a very profound and, and, and difficult question. Um, I, I, I've seen a lot. I feel sometimes that I lived uh, so many different lives. And I live in all the continents. I, so I, I, I experience a lot and I also experience a lot of uh, tragic things at a personal level. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, being human means being, you know, being acknowledge and, and, and fully acknowledge that we are fragile creatures and that and life can take away everything we have in a millisecond. Mm. And, uh, and also, uh, most of the times we are not so important like we think we are. You know, we, are we will be all dead in you know, our generation, my generation before yours, but <laughs> in a few decades we'll be, we'll be, de- we'll be over, we'll be dead, and whatever we do, if it's not super, 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 super important, it will be forgotten in a, in a century. So being human, for me, means being humble and, and fully conscious of my fragility and my, and my you know, we can, everything can finish in a millisecond. Uh, yeah. I don't know, I, I always have in my mind this. So um, maybe we should take ourselves less serious even when we, even when we do very serious things, it's yeah. really that a lot. Mm, I love that. I wonder, like, you, you also have, this is like so left field, but you also have a dog, correct? <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love seeing the posts that you make about um, Argos. Argos, your pup. Is there a, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, having interacted now with so many species, um, not only like the relationship that you have with Argos, but also the many creatures that you've come to know over the course of this career. Um, what does it mean to you to be a member of the thing that we call life? Like, what does it mean to you to be alive in a biological way, in an ecological way? Well, first of all, since I was a child, I remember I I always thought that. Um, from a universal point of view, I cannot be more important than my dog or than we are really the same. Yeah. We just have a, a smarter brain, so we take advantage of every single creature on this planet because we are who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since I, so first of all, I always remember that I always felt equal. And that. To other species. To other species, to other animals. So, and that's what actually triggered my desire to protect them because I, I don't see them treated like this. They actually we constantly treating animals like inferior beings, right? Uh, recently I read something really beautiful, I, I can't remember the name of the writer, but he was comparing animals simply to other nations. Mm. Okay, so we are 
trapped on this planet and we leave this world and we and we are we enjoy and, and we but and and together with other nations so that we should consider animals other nations nation like us and we collectively live in the space yeah but when you start comparing nations then it's not one nation is not more important than other one there are nations mm -hmm. right and that's what triggered my of course my passion to defend them um, and then, of course, I, another thing I really love, and most in general, is that there's a completely absence of self-pity, and, that's, I, and mm -hmm. this is something that mm -hmm. humans, we have a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I, I admire and I envy animals that have no self-pity. It's pretty impressive. I, think, I mean, I think about that pretty much every time it rains. <laughs> you know, like, we're sitting here, we're like, oh, bummer, we can't go outside. Whereas they're like, stuck outside and have yeah. to just sit through yeah. the wet. Imagine a, a, a wolf. You know, we saw wolves together, if you remember. Right? Yes, yeah. So imagine a wolf under the rain. Not an ounce of self-pity. Look mm -hmm. at it. Zero self-pity. Yeah. I don't give a shit, it's raining. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and that's what I envy in, in, in animals. There's a lot to be learned from that, for sure. That, that day that we went and saw wolves is one of the coolest experiences I've ever had in my life. It was absolutely yeah, yeah. so special. Yeah. I wonder if, um, the, the thing that you mentioned about uh, nations reminds me of a book. Have you heard of The Nation of Plants? No. Oh yes, actually yes. Yeah, it's by an Italian. Absolutely. I think it was yeah, translated yeah. to, yeah, to yeah, English. Yeah. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, it's about if the plants of the world were a nation, nation. what would their constitution be? <laughs> and, why are the articles of their constitution the way that they are exactly. based on science and the way they behave and then how would they address humanity and what would they what would they say to us it's a really great read for exactly. anyone listening um I love it. yeah i wonder speaking on that uh i i'm american a lot of the listeners of this show are almost certainly american or live in america um just by nature of of the audience and so i wonder you are italian and might have had a very different upbringing and entry to the the conservation realm than the typical American experience and like our understanding of what and why we're doing what we're doing. So curious to to ask how your like growing up in Italy led you to where you are now and how that plays into the work that you continue to do every day. I was born with this huge passion for nature as as you know as far as I remember, always that, you know, my, when I was seven years old, my, I wanted to uh, become a ranger in Africa, and then when I got to 10, 12, I changed, and I wanted to become a ranger in Canada, but that was always, I always wanted to do that. The yeah. problem is that I was, a, growing up in Milano, I was a city boy, so <laughs> zero nature around me. Sure. Uh, the only animal that I that I was uh, able to see and touch and play with with, with once a once a week the, the dog of my grand grandparents mm -hmm. uh, during the summer we're going to the Alps so and there's a bit more nature but in general it's very difficult to 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 dream mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. one day to be able to like I do work for nature uh, yeah. Back in the days, you know, I'm, I'm older than you, so pre-internet, pre-social media, uh, 
my Bible was the National Geographic magazine, so I was dreaming just reading National Geographic. Oh, one day I would be in Africa. But then again, it was, it was a time where it was, you know, flying around the world was very expensive. And, yeah. uh, you know, I remember once I was in India, I was very young, uh, and uh, just to call home and to send a message to my mother that I was alive, it, it took me half a day. Really? To organize the whole thing. Wow. And I was not in the middle of nowhere, I was in the city. Oh my so gosh. That was the time back in the day. So, uh, and now, now that's it, you go to Africa, you fly to Africa, you broadcast live from the jungle, right? Mm -hmm. And that's it, that's the life. So, for me, it was difficult. and um, But I always had this passion in me, so I, yeah, I always work hard to be able to, to work in this space. At yeah. least. Unfortunately, in my work, in my line of work, I don't see a lot of any live animals. Actually, they all dead, usually. Yeah. And, and criminals and stuff, so I, I, I deal with the dark side of, of this whole thing. In, in any case, I consider, very, I consider myself very lucky because uh, A, I'm doing what I like, mm -hmm. although very difficult and sometimes exhausting, but it's what I like to do. And B, I, I, I can fight for my family, which is nature. Yeah. So I, I, I'm very grateful that I can do that. And I, like, you know, in a way nothing changed from, if I think of myself back in time, this very you know, young Andrea, mm -hmm. six, seven years old, nothing changed. I'm really wow. the same person from this point to do. That's amazing. Yeah. And I love the, the way that traditional like such such well-loved material like National Geographic like came to yeah. inspire you and now we're in this this new age of media right. where creators are coming to the rise and we've talked not only in the <laughs> first conversation we had today but also in like before that in the past we've talked a lot about the hope that you see in creators yeah. and I'm curious if you can expand on that and explain uh, where that comes from what that looks like and also like how that might tie into the conservation movement and the work that you do? Well, in general, we try to work as much as we can with media uh, because it's very, because our work, what we do in the field, despite we, of course, we work a lot with law enforcement, we do a lot of confidential stuff that will never be shared with the public. That's also part of our, the challenge we have, right? To, 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 explain exactly what we do. It's very important for us to work with the media. That's why we did two documentaries. We're working on the third one. And so we have this public face that uh, for us is super important. And, uh, but it's also the most difficult part for us. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a lot of stories. We have cool content. We can you know, redact it a little bit and I can, you know, I can talk for hours about what we do in the field. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't have this capacity and the skills in-house, we don't, uh, then it's, it's complicated. So we constantly try to collaborate with content creators and anyone that can help us uh, putting together cool content and, and, and put it out, of course. So it's super, super important. And I, and I do think that content creators can play a very, very important role it's so refreshing to hear. <laughs> I feel like that's like, um, it's it's kind of like a secret weapon when you think of the the yeah. ways that the platforms that everyone has nowadays, right? Because like I, 
I learned at VidCon this week that like YouTuber is the most sought after career for like youth nowadays. It's like when I grow up, I want to be a YouTuber. It's like just a very, very regular statement. Um, and uh, it's encouraging to think like with so many people pursuing that and growing platforms like either by choice or by just like happenstance. We we mentioned this in the in our prior conversation, but even like every single person has even at least like a couple of followers. Even if you have like 30 followers, that's like bigger than most classrooms. Um, and so the capacity to be able to speak to a class every single day on like a cause that you care about, um, even if most of the week you're sharing your travels or your like pictures of whatever, um, you take like at least that one, one moment every week to like sit down and talk about something that's like near and dear to you. I can have a really, really huge impact. Absolutely, it's very, it's very, very important. And I have sometimes I, you know, I find myself, uh, you know, criticizing a little bit those, you know, when I see this uh, um, influencer, I don't know how to call them, you know, on sure. on, on the pla- on those platform with with hundreds of thousands, millions of followers, and they don't use their power, so to speak, to to help or to help. Cause, yeah. no matter what. Okay, again, every bit can be the environment, can be humanities, can be people, anything you want. And and instead, they constantly posting sunsets and cocktails and parties and this and that. And, and it's what a waste. I think. I mean, you have an incredible audience, and they they probably like you a lot. So think about the power that you have to. And again, we go back to this one hour a week. Yeah. Okay, it's not <laughs> such a big deal. Mm-hmm. One hour a week to make the world a better place. Yeah. So use the platform to, do, to make a better place, to make the world a better place. Yeah. I don't think people necessarily need to think that um, it's, it's not something they necessarily like should do, right? Like, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, like we could all not care and the world would fall apart and it'd be a terrible story for everyone involved. Yes. Um, but if there's something like like within within you, you said that you've always had this deep desire, and yeah. I, I deeply relate to that. I feel like I also have always had a deep desire to help the causes that I believe in. And if a creator or anyone with a platform, no matter the size, also feels within them that deep desire, it might be worth pouring into for Absolutely. at least an hour a week to consider how they might be able to use that platform to do a thing that ultimately not only makes them and everyone around them feel better, but also makes the world a better place in a exactly. tangible way. And if you don't have this passion at all, so if you don't care about anything, I, first of all, I'm sorry for you, <laughs> because it's an awful world to live in. But maybe you can consider consider it a, civic, a civil duty, a civic duty, okay? So that hour can be, become also a duty as a, you know, as a good citizen. Yeah. Even if you don't have a big passion, even if you don't think uh, you should do something special, but still, um, it's a waste of power. Honestly, when I see these big <coughs> influencers, mm-hmm. in, even the word influencers, you know, influencing about what? What are you influencing? Mm, I think I'm I'm inspired and encouraged by the amount of. By, by influencers ha- who have taken the initiative to like have a They're men, right? yeah really yeah, like absolutely. serious serious impact um, and you are an example of this you did it multiple times oh thanks <laughs> from the Arctic campaign and, and you know you did a, you're exactly an example for that
Oh, thank you. I mean, it always, it always takes uh, like a village of people. I feel like the the learning, like getting the legend and understanding the legend, like we talked about earlier, is really really important because every single thing that that I do or any other influencer does or or even the work that you're doing, like anyone in any field right now that is working for a cause they believe in is building on the backs of giants that have been working for a very long time. Um, and I feel like that humility that like we both discussed earlier is really, really important and also helps us all remember that we're working as part of a team, not just the immediate team, like your team of ghosts <laughs> going after ghosts yeah. or like my friends and I working on content and like respective like teams of editors and managers and whoever um, or like any individual organization's team but also the collective team that is like humanity yeah. being, yeah, being yeah, a good absolutely. person um, so it's nice to be able to lean back on that when you look back on all these impact campaigns and being like wow like it's not I've really had an impact it's like we've really, really had an impact together um, is there a cause that you would like to suggest as a, a, an opportunity for people to get engaged, like that might be listening. Um, what's a cause that you're really passionate about that people could get involved with, and what does that look like, if there is one that comes to mind? Well, I have many, of course, uh, uh, mostly related to, uh, to my work. Related to my work, uh, of course, I, 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 I invite people simply to, to learn more about Latin America is a poorly known continent compared to Africa or Asia. Uh, In regards to, it's the most biodiverse continent on mm. Earth, and uh, and uh, and yet is the is in, in, uh, collectively in the past few decades uh, very little money went to Latin America to protect Latin America. Mm. And when you talk about Latin America, you usually hear about the Amazon, but it's much more than the Amazon, not just the Amazon, of course. Yeah, uh, and we work a lot there. Um, so this is one cause I, I it's more than a cause, like it's a, it's a, you know, we have a lot of work going on at the moment. Um, another cause is not really related to my work, but I find it extremely interesting, is there's a whole movement, two movements actually. One is called the Ecocide Movement, mm. uh, which is mm -hmm. they are trying to uh, make Ecocide the Fifth international crime at the International Criminal Court in The Hague in the Netherlands. And you and that's E C O C I D E. Ecocide. Ecocide. Exactly. Like okay. uh, like genocide, but ecocide. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, to make a, a crime the destruction of the environment. Okay? Mm -hmm. So governments cannot uh, do certain things anymore, but also corporations that conduct because it's a crime. Yeah. So that's a really interesting. Uh, growing movement that I would suggest people to follow and support because it's super, super important. Um, the other movement equally important, uh, maybe less known, there is a movement uh, I've been working for a long time to give uh, certain animals, sentient, sentient species, especially like, like elephants or, or apes, um, a legal status. So a legal so oh, they, really? are, they could be represented in court. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And then they tried. Uh, the last time, a few weeks ago, in, the, in New York, they tried to represent an elephant in court. How was how that go over? Uh, not very well, but it's the beginning. Yeah. So basically, they are take they are saying this is a sentient being is able to suffer 
very you know very similar to the way we suffer, for example, mm-hmm. and and because we think is for example right now rotting in a cage, we think it's we can sort of represent him in court and, and, and give him him her legal representation. So that's another very interesting movement to so you can follow. That's awesome. Thank. You. Do you have a uh, another question that I love asking at the like the very end of these? podcast episodes there's there's two the first one is is there a book that you would recommend if like if you could only recommend one book for people to read what is the one book that people um ought to read at some point in their life i like many but i like very much uh called the elephant whisper mm. it's a beautiful story to the person someone the person and, and a group of elephants in south africa so. awesome I'm excited to check that out. <laughs> and then the, the final question is, is there something that someone did or said to you over the course of your career that deeply validated the work that you're doing? And who was it and what did that look like? Yeah, it, it happened recently. Uh, so as part of our work, we share confidential intelligence briefs or confidential reports with a lot of different uh, governmental agencies and law enforcement agency and recently uh, one of the most important law enforcement agencies in the US probably the most important one uh, they received information from us and they told us that our confidential intelligence brief have the same quality of their intelligence briefs wow. and that's so good for me for <laughs> us for my team was an incredible achievement and compliment of course uh, it's not really easy to share with the public, so we keep it, you know, for us, but now also for you. Yeah. Uh, but it was a great uh, achievement after so much work and so many years. Yeah, yeah that's hugely validating. Yeah. It's it's amazing the um, cooperation and synchronicity that you all have managed to pull, managed to continue pulling off for, for so many years. So thank you deeply for the work that you do and thank your you. team does on behalf of everyone listening and myself. And thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. It's been a joy talking and learning with you. Likewise. Homekeepers is made with the help of down-to-earth people like you. Thanks to Andrea, the patrons, Mitch Adder for editing, Olella for making the theme song, and you for listening and striving to make the world a better place. If you want to support, you can do so at patreon.com slash alexharris. And just like that, the episode's over. See you in the next one.